In this episode of Startups for the Rest of Us, Mike and I talk about why you shouldn't listen to your customers and what you should do instead. This is Startups for the Rest of Us, episode 401. Welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us, the podcast that helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing software products. Whether you've built your first product or you're just thinking about it. I'm Rob. And I'm Mike. And we're here to share our experiences to help you avoid the same mistakes we made. So where this week, sir? Well, I submitted the Blue Tick Zapier integration to Zapier to see about promoting it through their uh, their public availability process. So I've already heard back from them, got a list of things that they want to see changed to conform to the standards that they kind of set for everybody and to maintain consistency between zaps. So I've got to go back and look at those and make some changes and then republish it. But things did not seem to be too terrible. <laughs> nice. Yeah, that's super cool, man. Um, once that goes live, it's nice to be able to refer customers to Zapier when they're trying to do something in your app that you haven't built yet, you know, when you don't have an integration. That's That was always the the useful piece for us. Yeah. Well, the thing is, like, the, the Zapier integration is already there. It's just invite only. And there's a link inside the app where they can click on that link and go over there. It's just the difference will be that it will be public so that when people are searching inside of Zapier to see whether there is a Bluetick Zap, they'll be able to see it without having to log into Bluetick first. So at that point, they can they can add it to their account. But I guess you can't really do anything without an API key anyway. So. I remember the when Zapier promoted Hittail early on, we got a bump. And then... Drip. I remember it was. I'm trying to think if it was more or less, but it definitely in the early days when you know you're really scraping and clawing for every customer. I think that you get included in an email newsletter and tweeted out. I think and every every bit helps at that point, right? Even if you only get a couple new customers from someone hearing about it, it it can move the needle for you in the early days. Yeah, so I'm hoping to see that at least through the uh, the initial process in the next, I don't know, couple of weeks or so. I don't know how long it has to be in their beta for before it ends up being live. I think that they said that when I was looking through the specs, they said, oh, you should have at least one person using each zap and you need to have at least 20 active zaps or something like that. And uh, they've revised their stats page to so you can actually see more about who's using it and how many people are using the different zaps that you've published or made available. And I'm up to like 400 active or something like that instead of, and I only need like 20. <laughs> oh, yeah. Now that's a lot more than we had when, when we uh, went live with it. So that's cool. Segment.com will be another one you'll probably want to do at some point. Mm. Integrate with them. That's another big hub to get not only the promotion, but it's just nice because people are going to want to create reports or do things with the data that you're just not going to have time to build and referring them out to segment that can help there. Yeah, I'll definitely have to look into that one as well. The other thing I'm in the middle of right now is kind of specking out what the public API is going to look like. Everything in there is all used internally inside the app, and then I have a specific endpoint that's used solely for Zapier. And then the next step is to really kind of take that and say, okay, well, what what are we going to make public? Because there's a couple of customers who have wanted to use a public API, but I've told them to kind of hold off and just use Zapier. But moving forward, like I had a call this morning with somebody about what the specific things they needed from a public API from us are. And there's a, at least one other customer that I want to talk to who I know they, they do a lot of extensive development work and they're using Bluetick as the backend CRM for their entire company. So they've got several mailboxes attached and they want to be able to use that functionality inside there. So I, would, I definitely want to have a conversation with them first before I start making anything publicly available. Yeah, that makes sense. 
For me, I am in California when this episode airs. We're heading there for about two weeks. Going to see different groups of family in different areas, and my sons are going to a cello and violin camp, a Suzuki string camp, out in San Francisco. So, yeah, should be should be fun. It's where I'm from, and it's nice to get back there once or twice a year and kind of see the family and all that. Cool. Hopefully you won't be selling a company while you're uh, out there. <laughs> I know. That's the that's the old story, right? That I was signing the the final docs at the at the cello camp a couple of years ago. Getting dirty looks. <laughs> Indeed. Dirty looks from the instructor. So, hey, today I wanted to talk about, you know, I titled this episode, Why You Shouldn't Listen to Your Customers and What You Should Do Instead. And realistically, it's about deciding which feature requests to build and which not to, or even not even feature requests, just deciding what to build in general. There's always the popular meme of like launch soon and then your customer, do customer development and your customers will tell you what to build. But there's some struggle. I have some struggles with that. Number one, oftentimes your customers don't know really what they're trying to do, or they'll tell you to build things that you shouldn't build, but you should do it a different way. Or they're just going to tell you to build your competitor. They're going to say, hey, I've used Infusionsoft and it has these features and you don't have them. So can you just build this, this, that, and this? We had this all the time in the early days. People wanted, remember an early Drip user wanted a mobile app. He wanted like an iOS and an Android app. He wanted these very specific reports that made sense in MailChimp, but didn't, wouldn't have made sense for Drip to have. You know, it was just his, he's not a software person and his idea was just to have this be MailChimp, but with a cleaner interface and that wasn't what we wanted to build. And so it's really easy when you're getting multiple feature requests per day. I mean, by the time, you know, I, I left up a couple months ago, I think we get 150 to 200 feature requests per month. So it's a substantial one. And at a certain point, you have to figure out how you're going to evaluate what to build and what not to build. And so I've kind of broken this down. You know, I, I see it as like there's three types of feature requests. The first type is... I. I humorously named this the crackpots, but it's kind of oddball requests that you know that there's no chance you're gonna you're gonna build. They kind of come out of left field. So some examples of those are people requiring you or asking you for a feature that would require you to build an entirely new product. For example, why can't I use your email service provider to publish blog posts on my WordPress site? or to record my podcasts and publish them, you know, or to do all of my social media marketing. Like some people would ask us to, well, you, you do email, I want you to do like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and do those integrations. And it's not that we would never build those, but people were asking this when we didn't even have very basic features. I mean, in, in the first year or two, there were folks who were asking for this. And so it's just like, yeah, I know we're just not gonna, there's no chance we're gonna build that. The Another one is like asking you to clone your competitors. Like it'd be great if you could add a shopping cart and a CRM and lead scoring and basically be, you know, Infusionsoft, right? And it was like, nope, that's not our goal. Or finally, like features that are the opposite of your product strengths. So yeah, I remember someone saying like, I like that your UI is so streamlined, but can you add these, all these options to fit my rare and unique use case? You know, they didn't use those, those phrases, but that's the kind of stuff that can come across. And so may, these aren't necessarily, Crackpot may not be the best, best name for them, but they're really the ones that are obvious to you that you shouldn't build them. I think the really nice thing about the the crackpot requests is that they're usually very easy to decide like what to do about it. And you can just say, no, we don't do that. Or here's something that you can sign up for over here and they do that, but we don't. It's just very easy to identify them and say like, hey, this is, you have to be 
polite about it, but just say, no, that's not something we're going to do, or it's on our roadmap to look at, but it's going to be probably at least six months to a year. And it's not a good fit for you, especially if you need that right now. So that's the one nice thing or the saving grace about these types of requests, because, you know, they're, they're easy to dismiss. Yeah, no, that makes sense. The three types are the the crackpot, the no-brainers, right, which you should build, and then the in-betweens. And unfortunately, like, the crackpot ones are maybe, I w- I'm guessing, like 10% of your future requests. It's a really small amount, but you're right. Having that certainty is a good thing. And then the, the no-brainers, which are the ones where it's almost like, why didn't I think of that? If it's not already on your future list, but you realize, man, that's a really good idea. Like, I remember Josh Earle, uh, he runs Sublime Text Tips he also works with John Sonmez at, at um, Simple Programmer. He reached out to us in some of the early days of Drip and asked if there was a way to go back and retroactively add a tag to readers based on things they had clicked in the past. And it was like, that's a really good idea, you know, and it wasn't a huge amount of work at the time. So to me, that was like a no-brainer one that, you know, both me and Derek, it was like, why not? Why wouldn't we just build it? And we did, right? And I think we are the only tool that does it as far as I know. If you don't have the kind of the the trigger logic in our competitors at the time they click, you cannot go retroactively tag people. And I've used this feature all the time. It's one of those things where if, if I were to have to stop using Drip, I would sorely miss because I will frequently want to go back and do it. But those, the crackpots are good because they're definite no's and the no-brainers are good because they're definite yeses. So it makes it a lot easier. But I would guess that in total, probably less than a third of your feature requests will fit into one category or the other. Yeah, I haven't, like for Bluetick, I can't recall something off the top of my head where it's been just like a completely crackpot feature request. Most of them have been pretty, pretty close to what should be built or what is kind of on the roadmap. But I don't remember last time I had something come up that was just out in left field and it was just, we're never going to build. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And then the, the third type is the in-betweens, right? This, those are the ones where you actually have to make judgment calls. And that's really what, you know, I think the bulk of today's episode is about. It's about deciding which features to build when customers request them, right? There's this whole other path of like, you're going to build features that no one requested, right? If you're not, then you're you're really not innovating. You're not pushing your product past other competitors or I'm not saying I'm not saying you have to do this, but I believe like Derek and I always had a pretty strong vision for Drip and we were definitely building things that no one was requesting. But if people are requesting features, I have three questions that we used to ask ourselves and I think that that you know as a listener to the show the, it'll be helpful. So the first question is ask yourself what is the use case for this feature request? Or in layman's terms, what problem are you trying to solve? I always tried to take a step back and people would say, hey, can you add a checkbox on this page to modify this setting? And I would sit and think and say, why do you want to do that? And almost in probably 80% of the cases, they didn't actually want a checkbox there. They really, there, there was some other part of the app that wasn't doing what they wanted and they could go in and use a liquid tab for it. Or we could add a report that actually would help everyone and that would require them to not need that checkbox. And oftentimes we either, there was an alternative way to accomplish this already in Drip or the optimal way to achieve it for everyone to get value, like all the customers to get value was different than what the person had suggested. Because remember, 
for the most part, your customers are not software people, right? They don't know UX. They don't know apps. They don't know how to think about what to build to keep a product simple. So if you just listen to your customers, you build, you can build a monstrosity. One thing that I find very helpful is when you get a, uh, like a support request or a feature request like that, ask them what it is that they're trying to do. That way you're not guessing at what it is that they're trying to do. Cause you know, your example, the checkbox, you're, you're trying to read between the lines to see what it is that they want or what they're trying to achieve. And sometimes it's just not even related to anything that you have, or it's very situational specific inside of their business. So I find that asking blatantly asking like, what, what is it that you're trying to achieve or what problem are you trying to solve? Like that is really helpful. The second question that I used to bring up all the time when someone would request it and we'd start to evaluate is like, will more than 5% of our user base use this feature? More than 10, more than 20, you know, try to get, I mean, I had a pretty good feel. And as a founder, like you have a pretty good feel for your customer base, especially in the early days. And it's just asking yourself, will a lot of people get value out of it? And, and the number is arbitrary, right? Maybe it's, maybe your mark is, well, if, if at least 15% of people will use it, then it's good. Or maybe it's such a marketable feature that even if only 5% of your users use it, but it's an aspirational or a checkbox feature, something like split testing in email marketing apps. We found that a lot of people requested it. And when we built it into campaigns, almost no one uses it. You know, it's like 1% adoption. But being able to say that we can split testing campaigns and have that on the marketing side and talk about it during sales calls is something that's this important. Honestly, the visual email builder that's, you know, I think it's in beta in Drip now went live after, after I left. I bet a lot of people won't use it, but it is a checkbox item that when especially larger customers want to sign up and they're going to sign a one-year contract, they want to make sure you have this, this, that, and this, right? Because your competitors have it. And at that point, Sometimes you have to make a, make a choice of like, well, only a fifth of the customers are going to use this thing, but it's going to get us a lot more business. I think a lot of times you'll see people going, like if they're evaluating different products, they'll compare them to each other and try to say, okay, well, what features does this have and which features does that have? And something that they may not even necessarily use, the fact that it exists and they could use it if they wanted to is a, it's a good selling point, but I have mixed feelings on that just because sometimes people will use it just to make a decision versus wanting to use it. And then I'll see vendors, and this is kind of where my hatred of this process comes in, but I will see people deciding to implement those features. The vendors will implement that feature and the feature itself just completely sucks. But the only reason they built it was so that they could create a, like that checkbox on their website to say, hey, we have this feature. That used to kill me, actually. We had a few competitors build really crappy versions of split testing that were that were actually harmful. Like, they were not statistically significant. And I was, like, you know, face-palming because it's like, but they say, can say they have split testing, but it was a, it was a shit implementation of it, you know? And it's actually going to be detrimental to, to their customers. And I could never bring myself to do that in a product, like to build something crappy. And so as a result, stuff for us took, probably took longer to build than some competitors. There's one other trick we used a few times as well, and it was in the early days only, and it was when we, we it was a larger customer whose revenue would move the needle. We did build a couple of features that we basically hid in the UI, except for a handful of people. So literally like less than 1% of Drip customers would be able to see this feature. And it was a feature that really we didn't want to build. We didn't believe it should be in the product, but the revenue at the time was just something that we couldn't pass up. And uh, we didn't do it a lot. But you know, one of the bigger reasons we didn't want the feature in is because it would add more checkboxes and, and dropdowns and just 
negatively impact the UX in essence. And most people weren't going to use it anyways. And so that was a choice to just kind of, we had a feature flag and it would only go into a, a few accounts. And there still are a few features in Drip to this day, you know, that, that really are only appear for, for a small, small subset of customers. I think I have access to a couple of those features. <laughs> yeah, I know. I bet you do. I bet you do. That's interesting. I, I do the same thing with BlueTick where there are certain features that you can't even use inside the app, but I have like a backend toolbox application that allows me to either toggle them on or off or do different things inside of somebody's account where it achieves what they want, but is not something that they could actually do inside the app. So, And sometimes I'll use that to either test it out kind of in production. So for example, uh, one of them was a BCC field where people were like, oh, when I want, when I send emails out, I want to BCC this other email address. And for a long time, that was, you could do it inside the app, but like there was no way in the, in the UI for the user to see that it was actually happening. Like they had to contact me through support and I would actually put it into a field in the database and that would make it work. But now it's, it's actually rolled out and everybody can use it. But I used it as kind of a, a mechanism for sort of testing it out with live data to some extent. Yeah, that's a really good way to do it. We did that. Yeah, with any feature rollout that we thought was risky at all, we would totally feature gate it temporarily and then slowly enable it for more and more people. And then in this case, where I'm talking about actually building a feature and never never rolling it out to everyone, that was something, you know, again, we did in the early days when, when we needed to, when we were being scrappy. And so, you know, I meant to say this at the at the beginning of the episode, but this is actually, this outline is from an unpublished blog post of mine. So if I ever get around to finishing that blog post, you may see this on my blog as well. And I have additional examples. I can obviously go into more more things on, you know, in a, in a 2000 word blog post that we can cover in, in 25 minutes here. I've also considered doing a talk about this. Um, I know Derek did a, Derek Reimer, my Drip co-founder did an attendee talk a couple years ago at Drip on this topic. You know, we have similar takes because obviously we work together on it, but I feel like, you know, it could definitely potentially be a, you know, full like 30 or 40 minute talk. So with that in mind, the third question that we used to ask ourselves a lot when we get feature requests is, does this fit with my vision of what the product should be? And so coming back to an earlier example, since you know Drip was a competitor, especially in the early days, was compared a lot to Infusionsoft. And we would get a lot of requests to add shopping cart and landing pages and affiliate management, really things that we didn't want to build in the product because we didn't view Drip as, we, we wanted to integrate with best-in-class solutions rather than try to be everything to everyone because we felt like the bloated software just wasn't, we couldn't see an example of it in a space where the, adding all these features has, has helped anyone. It always makes it kind of a crappy experience. So the fact is that when you're bootstrapping, there's an opportunity cost, right? Every hour you spend building features is an hour that you don't spend becoming the best at what you're doing. And so that was where we decided to focus on integrations. And what's nice is the integrations were with platforms that people were already using, right? Like Unbounce and Shopify and Stripe, Gumroad, Lead Pages and PayPal, and on and on. And we had 35 integrations within probably the first year of being live. And that was a, it was a nice lift for us in terms of actually getting new customers because all those integrations are, they're promotional avenues if you can get folks to promote you. But you know, they were also, they just make the product more sticky. So this all ties in, you know, the question coming back to it is, does this fit with my vision of what the product should be? And we always had a pretty strong vision of like, we want it to be a best in class email marketing or marketing automation tool. Therefore, a lot of the requests that came through, it was like, huh, yeah, that doesn't fit with where we want to take the product. And we're just going to have to say no. 
the part about this with the like knowing what your what vision you have for the product is one of those things where it's it's a little bit more abstract. You have to kind of step back from the product itself, away from the features and away from the dirty details of how things are implemented and say you know, what is the type of person that you want to use this and what is it that you want to empower them to be able to achieve? Because otherwise you may have this vision for your product, but people come in with feature requests and they say, oh, well, this is why I want to do X. And if it's one of those in-between things, it could change or alter that that vision a little bit and shift it in one direction or another. And sometimes those shifts in direction will isolate or exclude certain types of people as well. So it's, it's something to be a little careful of because your vision can change over time based on the feedback and the feature requests that you're getting. And you can easily end up going down a road where you're attracting the wrong types of people. You're attracting more of them, but it's the wrong type of people. And they're having a bad experience because they're not using your tool correctly or in the way that you envision, and you're not catering to them anyway. So it's it's a very slippery slope you can end up on if you're not very careful about how you're making those decisions. Yeah, that's a good point. And your vision will likely change over time. I mean, in the, in the early days of Drip, my vision was completely different than what Drip became. That was okay, but you can hear it was a painful process to make that decision and to, and to kind of switch the vision. You can hear it in, if you go to startupstoriespodcast.com, there is a, like a 90-minute audio thing that Derek and I recorded over, I think, about nine months, and I edited 10 hours of audio down to 90 minutes. And you can hear the kind of the agony as we're going through of like, what should we be building? What actually are we building? You know, and early on, it was one thing, and then it became essentially an ESP with automation. And that decision process is what makes startups hard. And we were just trying to find product market fit. And therefore, our vision had to follow something that was valuable to people in their early days, it wasn't valuable enough. People were willing to pay us, but they were not willing to pay us the $49 a month that I wanted to be the minimum price point. And so we had to follow that. And then once we, once you get past that though, once you start scaling up and growing and you have product market fit, I think it becomes so, so, so much easier to know what you have, what you're building, what you should build. It, it really does get easier. It's the, that first year or, or 18 months that's really hard to, to figure it out when you don't have a large customer base and you don't just have that gut feeling of, of what you should build based on all your experience. Yeah, I totally agree with that. So, I mean, if you're if you're in a position where you don't have, I'll say, a kind of a critical mass of users yet, then take a lot of this advice with a grain of salt and definitely take the feature requests with a grain of salt because the decisions that you make now are going to change things in the future and draw or repel certain types of users. And that, that will influence ultimately how the product is received in the market and what other features you end up developing. I think the thing to remember is you're always going to get way, way more feature requests than you can possibly build. Even when you have 10 users, people are going to be requesting things. And as a bootstrapper, like time is your most valuable resource. You're just never going to be able to build everything you want. And if you could build everything you want, I don't know, I question if the product would get bloated too fast. It's like it's almost, it might actually be a benefit that you are time constrained because I think in the early days, you're going to want to build everything everyone requests. And if you were able to do that, I think you could potentially build a really crappy bloated product. 
Yeah, definitely the danger in building as many features as you like is the fact that it's it, it makes the interface much more difficult to work with. You have to do a lot more design work with where different things are in the app. And a lot of times as you add features, you have to restructure or re-architect either the different parts of the application itself or the UX, which forces underlying changes as well. So you're basically bolting things on after the fact. And I think that that's, that's why a lot of people, especially newer developers, tend to say, oh, I'd like to rewrite this app from scratch because now we know what we want to build based on all the features that we have. But it's really tough to do that unless you're in a situation where you can completely rebuild the app. And I think David, DHA from Basecamp has talked about this a couple of times where they've rebuilt Basecamp from the ground up. And as much as I disagree with that decision, like I would disagree with it for me, like in their situation, it kind of makes sense because they can essentially abandon the previous version and say, everyone who's using this, you're still going to get to use it, but anyone new is going to sign up and they're going to use this newer version and they get to work on new stuff. But not everyone is in the position where you can, you just basically halt all development on your current app and still be making millions of dollars a year from your current customer basis. Yeah, that's rewriting apps is, well, that would be a whole other episode. I think Basecamp is such an anomaly, you know, and such an edge case that very, very few other companies will achieve. Using them as an example is is tough just for that reason, you know, because they got in so early and, and grew so fast. But you're right, rewriting in the app, I mean, I've, I've seen several startups do that, and I always cringe pretty hard when, when they talk about doing that because it's just, it's not going to solve all your problems the way you think it will, you know, and it's going to keep you just frozen for six months while you try to rebuild everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, the, I think the fallacy there is that you understand how the different pieces fit together so you can re-engineer all the stuff to, to solve your current problems. But even after you've done that, let's say that you can do that in an hour and everything's completely restructured. Yes, it only costs you an hour, but you're still going to end up getting more feature requests that you're still going to have to bolt onto the application afterwards. And at that point, you're retroactively architecting new features into the architecture and how the UI and UX is all laid out. So it just will not solve every single problem that you have. I mean, there's certain problems you're just going to have to live with. So I think that about wraps us up for the day. If you have a question for us, you can call it into our voicemail number at 1-888-801-9690, or you can email it to us at questions at starvestherestofus.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from We're Out of Control by Moot, used under Creative Commons. Subscribe to us on iTunes by searching for startups and visit startupsforrestofus.com for full transcript of each episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.